So I, I love the discipline swings that are happening in the faculty spotlight. We actually began with political economy in a way uh, last year with Margarita Fajardo, Latin American politics, and this year we, we again begin with politics on a, on, a, on, a, on a global scale, and very much so. Um, but you know, it's interesting with uh, political economy because you know we all we're all hoping that education will lead to a financially fruitful life um, and not necessarily a precarious life, right? But as Jami will suggest, and as political economy teaches us that we are not always in control of our financial destiny. And in many ways, there are invisible hands, right? And invisible levers at work. And uh, with that, I'd like to introduce Jami. Jami has a BS and an engineering degree from Cornell, which is great, my alma mater. He, he, he has a PhD from the New School for Social Research. He's a board member of the Association for the Promotion of Political Economy and the Law. And he's also co-founder and on the editorial board of the Journal of Law and Political Economy, also on the board of the journal Money on the Left. So Johnny's work focuses on understanding the nature of corporations and money and the ways in which constitutional language, constitutional clauses, structure socioeconomic inequalities. And he's currently working on a book called Legal and Political Foundations of Capitalism, The End of Laissez-Faire. And I'm very, very, with a question mark. There's always a question. And I'm very, very honored to have Jami here, as well as Tim Kale, to help uh, moderate the podcast. And if there are any questions at the end, we hope you might just have a seat here so that the microphone can fully absorb your question. Thanks. So with that, thank you. Jami, if you could please state your name, uh, your personal pronouns, the title of the book you contributed to, and the title of your chapter in that book. Um, so my name is Jami Modu, that's uh, he, him, and uh, the, the title of the book? Constitutions uh, of uh, Value? The, yeah, Constitutions of Value, yeah, that's a, it, it came out of a conference in Germany a few years ago. Oh, okay. And the title of your chapter? The title of the chapter, God, I don't quite remember that. Capitalism, the Constitutional Theory of the Firm. Oh, yeah, Consti Capitalism, uh, Constitutional Theory of the Firm. Yeah. And Value Production, yeah, it's no, Chapter production. 6. Yes. <laughs> For the Sarah Lawrence Library, I'm Tim Kale, and this is the Sarah Lawrence Library Podcast. For today's episode, we're joined by Professor Jami Maldoud to discuss economics, politics, and history, and how they all intersect. This episode was a faculty spotlight, a part of our faculty spotlight series where we shine a light on our faculty member who are producing work, uh, which is where we all sit down together before an audience in the library reading rainbow room and record a conversation for the live audience. If you'd like to see this for yourself, we're booked solid for the remainder of the semester, and the next event is an exploration of artists and SLC faculty Gene Shin's work. That will be on Tuesday, October 10th at 4. So please come by. There will be coffee and cookies, and we're planning to have an interesting slide demonstration. Uh, well, you know, it's still all coming together, so don't hold, quote me on this, but, but it's still coming together, and it's coming together nicely, and it'll be great to have uh, a, a good crowd for that one, and I think there will be. So again, that will be on Tuesday, October 10th, 
at 4 p.m. Please show up. We'd love to see you. Before we go any further, though, I'd encourage you to give the podcast a five-star rating and review in Apple Podcasts. This is your way to leave a positive mark on the show and help us continue to find our audience. You can connect with us on social media at SLC Library on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Remember to visit the library website at sarahlawrence.edu slash library for any of the many services we offer, including booking a consultation with one of our research librarians or using our sewing machine or 3D printer. If you have any questions, concerns, or suggestions that you'd rather not share over social media, email me at fkl at sarahlawrence.edu. Thank you for joining us today. We hope this episode finds you well and that you share it with your friends and colleagues. Now let's begin. So when I asked you for a title for this talk, uh, you wanted to title it Inside the Invisible Hand, Corporations and the Fingerprints of Law and Politics. So the first question I have to ask is, what is the invisible hand? Well, so that's, there's a lot of debate on what the invisible hand is, is uh, you know, but a common understanding is that the invisible hand is just a sort of the market doing its thing, supply and demand sort of balancing each other out in some way. And um, th- there's, there's this notion that market forces sort of operate in a kind of uh, space which is separate from politics and the polity. And so in this process, supply and demand tend to kind of balance each other out because of private decisions by firms to produce, consumers to consume, uh, businesses to invest, and so, and so it, 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 they kind of balance each other out spontaneously without anybody meaning to do so. Okay, that's much more benign than I was imagining. I, I, well, but no less interesting because I was imagining that there's some kind of, and maybe this is my own conspiratorial brain. The guiding hand is like the the people who pull the levers of society, oh. and kind of like the invisible hand guides the world in one direction or the other, like the bad guys. No, <laughs> no I mean it. it it doesn't. Uh, I mean, that's not the way that the uh, that the notion exists. I mean, okay. there's there's a benign notion of it in the sense that this process of market equilibration leads to the full employment of labor, and everybody gets rewarded according to how productive they are. That's one interpretation of the invisible hand. Okay. And then there's an older tradition, well, an older tradition in economics, which argues that in fact that is consistent with persistent levels of unemployment, mm. and workers or yeah, workers do not or people don't get. Um, earn an income in line with how productive they are. So there's a big split in the discipline itself going back about 200 years. Okay. Um, yeah. Okay. So you write that while a discussion of the complex determinants of right-wing authoritarian movements is outside the scope of this paper, my goal is to critically engage with the neoclassical economic model that has over many decades power, the inequality, and insecurity fueling the rise of the far right. Mm -hmm. So my question for you is, how has neoclassical economic model powered the inequality and insecurity fueling the rise of the far right? So there is a old um, 
tradition in economics, um, going back to the early 19th century, I think Tocqueville was one of the first ones written who wrote about this, who argued that democracy is antithetical to uh, the system of property rights, because as long as you had, as long as you didn't have democracy, conservative political parties could appeal to the economic elites. The problem is that once you start to get democracy and you get working class uh, parties and working class movements sort of demo democratically mobilized, the problem then is how do such conservative political movements um, extend their mass base at the same time that they, that they need to satisfy the interests of the economic elites. And in the process, uh, there is, there's, a, there's a kind of a, what, what one, some authors have called a, um, a, a conservative dilemma, which is to say that trying to ensure an economic system that maintains um, potentially high levels of inequality, but at the same time trying to cater to the interests of the working class whose interests are often antithetical. For example, progressive taxation or a minimum wage or uh, any of those kinds of concerns which are opposed by the elites at the top of society. And so what often happens, uh, and the Weimar Republic was a, was a great example of all of this, but you could also talk about the current moment here, which is that there's an increased pandering to um, far-right uh, sorts of cultural values as a way to sort of uh, prevent major redistributive types of policies. But then, but then how do you then convince people that you're going to, uh, you, uh, that is to say, um, a conservative political party, how is it going to maintain that mass base while at the same time not really reducing inequality? And one, that, one way to do that is to sort of engage in a variety of ways of appealing to reactionary sentiments, race-based sentiments and such, uh, anti-Semitism and so on. Um, that, that's one version of how authoritarianism creeps into the maintenance of an unequal economic system. Mm. Another version of it, but it's linked to it, is to foreclose uh, certain kinds of economic policies completely shut them out. So the European Monetary Union is a really great example of, uh, a, it's a case study of authoritarian uh, liberalism in which the European Central Bank uh, as a separate entity completely um, forecloses national legislatures from pursuing policies that would need access to a central bank because no country in Europe has an autonomous, has, an in, has a sovereign central bank. If you don't have access to a sovereign central bank, that forecloses a variety of public finance initiatives that would be necessary for uh, a wide range of policies. So uh, central bank independence, this idea that somehow the central bank should be controlled by technocrats, can lend itself to a kind of politics where um, you can participate in voting and all this kind of stuff, but you cannot really engage in policies that require additional spending or so on. Those are severely curtailed. Okay. Even when they contradict constitutional provisions, most European um, 
uh, most European states, countries, actually all of them, have social and economic rights in their constitutions. But the EMU forecloses those from being deployed, especially in moments of crises, for example, the Greek debt crisis uh, in 2015, 2016. Okay. So... What's something about money the average person just doesn't know <laughs> that they'd be much better off if they did know? The yeah, simple answer is money is a legal institution. Uh, money is central to the production and reproduction of social and economic life. And if the economy uh, is, is fundamentally uh, rooted in law and politics, which you know, many of us have argued from an, a really old intellectual tradition, which we can talk more about, money uh, is by definition a product of law and politics. And so uh, understanding your bank account, right? Um, or understanding um, the history of um, race-based lending in this country, mortgage, right, mortgage, uh, uh, home mortgages, that those were profoundly uh, colored. Money has a color. Mm. And that means that there is politics, uh, the way that the home mortgage system was hardwired legally in the 1930s was that it predominantly benefited white working class people and not black people. And that's a really very important route to inequality uh, because home ownership is a very important way to sort of accumulate more wealth. Um, so money is a legal institution, and I think one of the biggest challenges is, first of all, getting students to understand, well, getting people to understand what money is, and so like some of my money students are here, so like having them suffer through the sort of understanding of money in neoclassical economics, and you know, we do this very standard textbook in neoclassical economics by Frederick Mishkin, which is taught in every money and banking course in the world. And then we go through the whole neoclassical, okay, this is this, 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 this. And then, okay, what's the old intellectual debate in money uh, that the book doesn't cover? And that's got nothing to do with law. But just a debate about the nature of credit money itself, and there's a 200-year-old history of that, which the conventional neoclassical uh, you know, textbook like that, and I tell my students, you have the PDF of that, do a search. It's a, it's a 1,000 or 500 page book. Go and search for um, the banking school and all these debates that challenge that model going way back, and it's not there. So first of all, you have to teach the neoclassical stuff, and the students, their heads start to spin at that, and I had a little experience of that today because we had to go through some equations and stuff, you know, and the standard. And then you have to provide a critique of that and an alternative, but then you have to, which is, the standard sort of critique from outside neoclassical economics, from heterodox economics. Uh, but I myself am somewhat critical of heterodox economics. So then I have to say, well, okay, at some point down the semester, what's the limitation of the critique of the critique? And that's where uh, the legal issue comes in, because money is a legal institution, which is generally not taught uh, to economists of any kind. So, so changing our perspective on money yeah, and it's what a, it is. yeah. I, I would argue that money has always been a legal, politically constructed legal institution. But to do that, you have to tell the story in a step-by-step -step way and have students engage, you know, these rival perspectives. Um,
for them to really understand. That, unfortunately, it's a year-long course, so you know, I have the space for that. <laughs> you write that the economy does not just arise spontaneously, but its construction is of human design, usually of a deeply contested nature in political, cultural, and ideological terms. Right. So I love this point because it's an interesting point where these resources, uh, there were in nature, the natural world, there are resources and there are competition based on gathering those resources. Um, but in nature, there's no bartering. There's no haggling. There's no analysis of goods or misappropriation of funds. A squirrel is not asking a chipmunk for a loan. What does it say about us humans that we create these economic, socio-political structures? We create them, but the issue is who is the we here? And if you think about society as not a homogenous we, but profoundly structured by relations of power, as a cut across race, class, and gender lines, and of course internationally, then the issue is not to just recognize power, but to theorize it. Power is wielded generally through an institutional framework, a legal institutional framework. I mean, that provides a context. So then that gets into the deeper question about what is institutions? What are institutions? I mean, institutions are the sort of um, the rules of the game of social life, of economic life. The question then becomes, where do those institutions come from? And there's one view that institutions' law just arises spontaneously, it kind of bubbles up. Law is kind of epiphenomenal to the economy. That's the conventional view. There's an opposite view which argues that law is not epiphenomenal, it is constitutive. In other words, it's actually doing much more work. It's actually constructing the background rules of property rights, of contracts, torts, harms. And those are really the building blocks of the economy. Think of our business competition, right? Business competition involves a process of creative destruction. I mean, there's enormous wealth generation. There's also, uh, you know, greenhouse gases, for example, enormous social costs. And so the question then becomes, when we're thinking in terms of property rights of any kind, how are those being conceptualized? Is property inherently pre-political? That's the conventional view. Or is property deeply a product of society? Is it socially embedded and thereby generates a conflict of interest, not only between property owners and non-property owners, but between property owners themselves? So the river runs through here. We are all farmers. And the question then becomes, all right, we're drawing on this body of water to water our, 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 our farms. How much water we draw on it? What uh, pollutants do we dump into it? That structures a, you know, what's allowed and what's not allowed. How those property rights are being constructed and reconstructed over time, that's a matter of politics and our relations of power. Politics in this view then is actually playing a central role. And so this particular intellectual tradition goes back to the early 20th century not uh, amongst the, uh, so there were the original institutional economists in the interwar period, the American legal realists, a bunch of people who are not associated explicitly with economics or law, but somebody that you may have heard of, Dewey, John Dewey, 
was part of that intellectual tradition. W.E.B. Du Bois. Uh, all of these folks, the German historical school, so I'm coming from that tradition, which argues that in fact the private is profoundly social. Freedom is not, is not absolute, property rights can never be absolute. We are, you know, because it's social, they will inevitably come into conflict with each other. And then the question becomes, how do these conflictual relations um, get constructed and reconstructed, the boundaries get constructed and reconstructed over time? That's a matter of politics and power relations. When did you first feel like you'd found your calling in this subject? On 684. 684. On I-684 on I in the spring of 2014. So I was we had a conference here. Uh, Shahnaz Rao, my colleague, and I had organized a conference on Pakistan. And there was a lot of great presentations, including something on taxation systems. And a lot of people were talking about agricultural landlords don't pay taxes in that country. So I'm driving home on the highway, and I'm thinking, taxes. Do I know anything about taxes? No. Although as an economist, you know, the tax rate is something that we use in a parametric sense in our macroeconomics classes. What determines that small t? So this is a little bit like the little engine that could, right? I mean, you know it's there, but you don't really know it. So the little, that little t in the little tax rate, then, wait a second, it, it, it struck me that well, the tax rate is surely a function of property rights and power relations. I mean, who pays taxes? It's not a mechanical thing. But then I said, wait, do I know anything about property rights? No. So this is literally on the highway. Do I know anything about um, the politics of taxation? No. I said, geez, this is really humbling. <laughs> and I'd published quite a bit, and I said, I don't know this stuff. And I said, then it just intuitively said, I said, wait, this is, this is a legal question, but what is law? So it is like I went down this rabbit hole, so I, my, my younger daughter, she's a dancer, brought her to her dance academy, and I'm just sitting literally outside the dance academy, and I'm on my phone. I'm saying, law and capitalism. Who has done work on law and capitalism? And this program at Harvard Law School pops up. Chris Dasan, Chris Professor Dasan. I, so I went back, I said, holy cow. So I went back home and I wrote to her. I said, dear Professor Dasan, you know, I'm really interested in these legal questions, but I don't know anything about law. And but I think they're central to the analysis of money and taxes and this. She wrote me back immediately, like within a day. She said, dear Jami, so nice to hear about this. Uh, would, uh, here, here are some papers. Uh, read them and we can talk more. And, so then, and then I wrote to Duncan Kennedy, who's a, a very major, important figure in, in, in this tradition. And I wrote to him about taxes. I said, dear Professor Kennedy, I you know, explained my dilemma. He wrote me back. He said, what a great question. We should talk. <laughs> so, so one thing led to the other. And then I said, you know, as a theorist, I said, I need to really understand law. I really need to get into the weeds of legal theory. Because so I literally sat down. And I mean, I got to go, got invited to conferences, and um, I realized that I needed to publish in that field, which I proceeded to do. So my last several publications have been just, you know, written have been 
uh, refereed by legal scholars. And so then I, you know, I felt more comfortable. So then, uh, you know, that I kind of established myself in this tradition. I'd published in law journals and things like this. Um, and then, and then Chris Dasan is going to be doing the foreword to my book, which was, I was just absolutely delighted. So that is, is, that's the story. So I went and met Duncan Kennedy at Harvard. And actually, I met um, Morton Horwitz, who was a legal historian, a very distinguished legal historian. And here's an interesting story that Horwitz told me. I, I went to meet him at Harvard, and I said, so Professor Horwitz, what do you think I should be doing, given this interest I have? He said, hmm. Maybe you want to do something on the economics of regulation. And he gave me his folder that uh, he had just retired that year. He said, here, here's my folder. Why don't you use this? I said, why are you teaching a course on the economics of regulation? I mean, he said, well, here's what happened. A few years ago, graduate students from the Harvard Econ Department came to me, to Horwitz, and said, can you teach a course on economic history? And, and Horwitz said, well, get one of your professors to teach the course. They said, there is not a single professor in the Harvard Econ Department who teaches economic history. Oh. So it was Morton Horwitz who was teaching economic history. And of course, legal economic history, which is the coolest kind of economic history you can <laughs> teach. You, know, you teach this subject, you think about this subject, you write about this subject. How do you maintain that interest and excitement for it? Well, it's exciting because it, it's exciting because I've always been excited by the power of ideas. It's also my own political engagement. Like I think a lot of us, it's it's hard when you look at the world, right? Mm -hmm. And and trying to make sense of the world, you know, trying to make sense of it and trying to say, well, can you can one suggest sensible alternatives that could make a difference. And I don't have much patience for people who just talk. Oh, we need to do this, we need to do that. Yeah, I know we need to do this, that, and the other. How do you plan to do it? And for me, as a social scientist and as a scholar, I want to get into these deeper questions. And so for me, the sort of that deeper theoretical engagement, I mean, I was an engineer. So as an engineer, I look at a bridge that's about to collapse. And I say to myself, well, how was this bridge designed? What's the microcrystalline structure of this bridge? That's like just intuition. Just, you know, that's just natural. So trying to understand even the meaning of words in the way they construct a statute and the, how they construct um, a policy, that I could spend a month just doing that because I think it's important to, to it's a microcrystalline structure of the bigger policy. Uh, so the excitement comes from just that, but also that, for me, this is also a political project. It's always been a political project. What do you love about teaching? Doing fun stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're here. I don't want to like, embarrass myself over here. Um, I, I think being able to teach um, new ideas and being able to explore new ideas, and sometimes you find you yourself don't really understand these ideas, yikes. And so then, then just saying that, okay, I need to relearn these ideas, you know? But also being able to just say, well, okay, um, here I'm teaching this course, and I can see these students struggling through it, and then at one point a student says, oh my God, 
the gears just fell into place. I have one particular student whose name I shall not mention in a particular class in which I just pounded those students with papers and high levels of theory and that student was like, what the heck is he doing to us? And then at, at some point, it just clicked before the sp spring break of that year and boom. And so when, when that student came to me and said, my Jami, I just, I just understood. I connected the dots right from what we started in the fall. I said, there you go. <laughs> that made it worthwhile. <laughs> okay. So what do you do, if anything, when you want to switch off and not be thinking about your job? Many things. <laughs> I play the guitar. Oh, nice. I like to do um, 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 biking in forest land. Okay. Forest. I love doing that. Mm -hmm. Playing with my cats. Nice. Cooking. Cooking. Oh, I love cooking. Yeah. yeah. Like fun, finding out new, new ways to make new things. That's really exciting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's that's real that's foodie. All good. All good. That's all good, good stuff. Yeah. Um, so this gets to something that you said earlier about history. I was recently talking with another professor about gender studies. Mm -hmm. And I was listening to them and it became clear to me that they were a student of history. And that given their subject, they had to be. Right. Uh, in reading your chapter, I kept getting that same sense that you are a kind of economic historian. That's what I am. Yeah. You outed me. <laughs> I don't think you can do economic theory without economic history. You can't. Mm -hmm. I mean, they, it's done. So mainstream economics actually does that. And that's a particular methodological view, right? Which is that, that economic theory is just constructed on a set of assumptions. But those assumptions really have no basis in reality. A rival view, view is to construct economic theory by looking at evidence. And evidence does not necessarily have to be numbers. Evidence is also history. And engaging with historically based analysis gives you that kind of data. Not in a kind of an objective sense, but at least you can see this is what happened over here say, English or French monetary history or whatever, and you say, well, okay, how is this then consistent with the theory of money and the theories of money in, in you know, so you're sort of engaging with reality uh, and the past is the reality that we have to work, the raw material that we have to work with. So yeah, I'm absolutely, uh, I teach a course in business history, oh, okay. which I think, which, which um, <laughs> I had a student who was really enjoying that course, and I said to that student, what do, you, what do your um, friends think that you're take, taking a course on business history? They, and his expression was, they go, ew, <laughs> and <I> why? <laughs> uh, uh, you know, uh, he got it, but unfortunately, there's a sense that somehow if you do business history, then that's something which, it's, it's actually not. Mm -hmm. It's actually something much richer than what it, it, people think it to be. Mm -hmm. So you end your chapter strong. At the end of the day, this is your writing, at the end of the day then, the key issue that this chapter raises is the question of stable and well-paid jobs and reducing inequality. This goes beyond mechanical demand st stimulus policies to lower unemployment rates as taught in macroeconomics. 
It requires an understanding of the power relations within the economy and how they could be restructured. So my question for you is, what are some of your ideas for how they could be restructured? This is where history becomes important. And the fact that power relations with regard to, let's say, labor have indeed changed, sometimes much for the better. Um, I think strengthening uh, laws that allow uh, workers to unionize, uh, that would be an obvious one but progressive taxation, right? But also a more subtle, I mean, the taxation system is interesting because I've been giving a lot of thought to that. Um, changing the rules of accounting. You know, I, I, kind of <laughs> I kind of joke about this to my students that I should teach a course on accounting because I think it would be kind of cool to do it uh, because account, and I'll get, you know, then most people will think, oh, well, accounting, yeah, right, like it's, uh, it is. But accounting is actually profoundly political. There's actually a critical journal, there's a journal of critical accounting. So changing the rules of accounting as a way by which certain things are written off when they shouldn't be, right? Or imposing certain penalties that if you're gonna dump certain kinds of, if you're gonna create certain kind, you know, adjusting, um, adjusting um, budgets in a way that reflect um, social priorities. So I'll give you an example of that. Um, there, there is a, there, some countries now have, a, have incorporated gender into national budgeting systems. And that's really interesting mm -hmm. because in order to, in order to advance gender equity, you have to go to the, the central nervous system of the system. And you say, well, okay, national accounts budgeting, they don't, if you leave out gender notions from those, then that's a political decision. But on the other hand, if you incorporate in them budgetary allocations for yeah, public, uh, public daycare, publicly funded daycare, that's, that could have an enormous impact just by itself in terms of redressing certain kinds of well, gender-based inequalities, right? So I think the, the political economy of public budgets and public finance, that's something that interests me a lot. Central banking, the political economy of central banking as a way to sort of use the public finance system to advance certain kinds of social goals that are neglected currently. Right, which raises questions about the central bank, you know, all kinds of things like this. But that, those are kinds of ways by which I think one could think in terms of sort of reducing inequality or increasing equality. I don't know, but I mean, there's, there's all kinds of issues there. But yeah, that's one of the things that I'm interested in. Okay. Is there any story happening right now in the world as it relates to the economy um, that we should all be paying attention to? I mean, the question is, it's like a, it's like a laundry list. <laughs> so I wouldn't know where to start that pertains to the economy. Well, pretty much most things, <laughs> I don't want to flatter myself, <laughs> most things pertain to the climate, right? Yeah. Um, I think that Look, I, I was actually having this conversation with somebody uh, the other day. And I was and I, I mean, actually with a student uh, who was writing a conference paper on climate. And then he said to me at the end, he said, Bajami, um, 
I need to relate this back to the economy. Like it's an, I said, wait, you already fell into a trap over here. Why is talking about climate separate from talking about economics, right? And, and you know, so if you think about any production process, any production process is a chemical process. Inputs of raw materials, right, and uh, capital equipment, and then combines with labor to produce an output and waste. Now there's, there's already the chemical process itself is fundamentally ecological, right? So the economy is fundamentally ecological and it has social ramifications. So getting people to sort of understand the deep inner connections between what we call economics and whether it be climate or whether it be, I think the one thing that I am really interested in is the growth of the far right. Mm. And that, I mean, that's been a, it's a kind of a sad interest, but like uh, I actually wrote a chapter in my book on this. So the understanding the, the, the far right as a global phenomenon, not just a US phenomenon, and trying to relate that to uh, you know, um, law, and, law and political economy, that is something that um, I think it's, it's, uh, it, it's, uh, it's a, as a pathological movement, it actually is also very pedagogical because it helps you understand the deep connections between law, politics, and economics, which ironically the far right actually recognizes. Conservatives actually recognize that link. Uh, but I didn't think a lot of people do. So they kind of tend to say that, well, they will partition of economic questions and just talk about far right politics in kind of isolation. Uh, and, I'm, and so for me that is so, the answer to your question is climate change, but also I think for me, uh, it, you know. The far right. Yeah, understanding uh, the contemporary global far right. Yeah. Um, okay, so I'm, um, I've got one more question, and then we'll turn it over. Um, any questions that I didn't ask you that you wish I had? Well, I think the, the, the question that um, could have been asked is, the question of methodology, because I think the, I mean, it kind of, it kind of was implicit to so much of these questions, but I think trying to understand methodological questions in the study of economics, uh, I think it should be like a core thing. And so how do uh, mainstream economists actually, what kind of methodology do they use to actually propose you know, free market, quote unquote, free market policies and all the rest of it. And, you know, what's, what's the issue there? And I think that question of methodology is, um, it's something that I think a lot on. And I think we should be teaching and we do teach that, but it's something that students should be aware of and, you know, others should be aware of. All right. All right. Thank you. Yeah, this has been great. Tell us also your name. Sure. Um, my name is Desmond Luck. I'm a librarian employee and my question is, as a historian and as a legal scholar and as an econo uh, economist, but also as a teacher, you talked about the idea that there are more issues out there that we should be aware of than you could possibly talk about right here. And I assume that also means that you could possibly teach about in one class or possibly write about in one book. And so how do you address the closer 
more feasible issues that you think could maybe be treated a little bit more immediately versus the longer term, more far reaching ideas that you have that you think would be tremendously beneficial, but maybe harder to achieve? How could they be or what are they? Uh, How do you address priorities, essentially? How do you decide whether you want to push a topic that you think is a little more achievable or a topic that you think is more beneficial but further away? Oh, well, that's that's an interesting question. I think, you know, look, I think the question of the far right is a clear and present danger. Um, Because, you know, any sort of discussion of reducing um, greenhouse gases or reducing inequality, reducing, uh, you know, fighting racism, these are these are immediately quest, immediately questions of um, democracy, as needless to say. But the problem is that uh, these democratic attempts to to um, these these democratic attempts to sort of um, change all these injustices and problems meet with this looming threat to democracy. And I think that to me is an urgent, it's a clear and present danger that uh, has to be understood in terms of its intellectual foundations because it has it. So Project 2025, which is, uh, the new, there's been a lot of reports on Project 2025, which is what would um, be the agenda um, if Trump wins in 2024, or if there's a Republican win. And if you look at the Project 2025, which, is, which has been put together by the Heritage Foundation and a whole panel of conservative organizations, including legal foundations, conservative legal foundations, um, that's, you know, that's something that we need to understand because that could dramatically change uh, you know, what we understand to be democratic politics in this country. That's, uh, you know, for me, that's like an urgent threat. And we need to really, in order to push back against it, we need to understand it, understand intellectually the arguments of those who are, who constitute the intellectual basis of Project 2025, for example. Hi, Tommy. Um, (laughs) My name is Josie. Um, I was just wondering if you could expand a little bit on how money is legally coded. Um, for some of the listeners, maybe, um, you know, like uh, in the past today in class, you talked about how, you know, shells or salt or all sorts of different things have been, quote unquote, money in the past. Um, so maybe just talking a so, tiny bit more about you that. You know, I think the idea would be that, I mean, if you take something like, let's say, your bank account, right? Your bank account, um, you know, you put in money into your bank account and, um, um there's a contractual relationship between you and the bank, right? Uh, and that contractual relationship uh, is, is, is a legal relationship. The money that you put in there, however, is also the property of the bank. The bank can make money off of it, but by the same token, it, it doesn't have to pay you any interest on it. So there's a, there's a complicated relationship right there. But I think more specifically to your, to your point, to your question, you take bank loans, right? Now bank loans, um, and, and you know this, uh, before 1973 in the US, if you were a woman and you applied for a bank loan, you needed a male cosigner. 
for a bank loan, including applying for credit cards. And until 1988, 88, if you wanted to apply for a business loan as a woman in this country, you needed a male cosigner. In other words, somebody in your family, a husband, a brother, yeah, a husband or a brother or, you know, you know, somebody, you know, in your family. Now, but think about this for a minute, right? At every step of the way, what changed there was not some blind forces of markets, but it was a women's movement. <laughs> That's what changed it, right? And so the Act of Congress that was the 1974 ruling and the Act of Congress that was the 1988 ruling that changed the rules of the game of the credit system also changed the economy. Politics acting through the law constructs the monetary system which is the basis of the economy, right? So that is like one example. And I mentioned the home mortgage system, um, the way it was colored in a particular way. Uh, predominantly benefiting, or only benefiting white people, white working class people as opposed to black people for the longest time until the uh, Fair Housing Act of 1968 changed somebody, right? So again, you see over and over again, and so the important thing to also understand is that before these rules of the game were changed, you still had a political design of markets that basically said that banks were within their rights to discriminate against women or blacks or whoever. That was completely the law. They didn't have to, you know, you see what I'm saying? This, the, the law was always there, even when it granted permission to discriminate. Hi, I'm Mari. Um, will you tell us more about your upcoming book? Okay, so the book is, um, it's, it's called the, the Legal and Political Foundations of Capitalism the end of less affair with a question mark. And I liked actually the subtitle more. Uh, so the book, the, so it's a play on two major pieces. The famous institutional economist John R. Commons' book, The Legal Foundations of Capitalism. So this legal and political foundations of capitalism. Um, John Maynard Keynes, the famous economist, uh, had written a famous article, very important article, called The End of Less Affair Period. Um, so this is the end of less affair question mark. And the purpose of the question mark is twofold. You know, what's the future of this ideology given the situation that we are in? But more interestingly for me, and I chastise Keynes for that in that particular chapter, is that what do you mean the end of less affair? End of less affair implies that less affair existed, whereas the central point of this book is it has never existed. It's a chimera. And uh, so the whole point of this book is to debunk this idea of laissez faire and bring back, you know, in other words, a separation of econ the economy from the polity and to resituate economics and markets within the context of politics, political institutions. Um, and so that's basically it. And so one chapter deals with money, another chapter deals with, well, one is a theoretical framework, then another chapter deals with money. Uh, and constitutional law. So comparing three separate constitutions, the United States, German, and South African constitutions, and relating that to the question of public finance. So that's a politics of money. Another one deals with money and race and colonialism and how central banking was deployed in, in colonial periods uh, 
uh, in the colonial period and how central banking was deployed by European countries after the Second World War. Uh, another one deals with corporations, right, the visible, invisible hands. And then I have another chapter on authoritarian liberalism, which is actually the chapter on the far right and theorizing that. I actually have a question for you again. Um, could you tell me what your writing practice is? Do you wake up at the same time every day and crack out like 10 pages? Or is it more fluid than that? It's fluid, but I think I'm the brightest early in the morning, and then my brain power kind of decreases over the course of the day. <laughs> <laughs> By the time, like in my mid-afternoon, I'm like, oh God, I'm just sick of this. Mm -hmm. But otherwise, I wake up pretty early. Okay. That's when my brain is at its sharpest. Okay. And then I have to go and go for, for, a, for go to the gym or go and work out or go and bike riding. Um, but yeah, that's okay. my general routine. All right, that's great, thank you. Just really quickly, I wanted to let you know that if you wanted a blast from the past, we have a few of your works right behind you, including the Thank conference Re-Envisioning Pakistan. Um, Thank you. It's here for you. It's here for anyone else who wants to take a look. Thank you. Thank you so much. I've got a question. So, you know, I was really intrigued by the, the, the left, the far left, far right. I'm just so curious as to why, uh, you know, for example, think talking about Trump. Trump is so popular among poor and working class white men. I mean, the polls have shown this. And this, it, apparently this group seems to aspire towards the right. And you, you, talk, you mentioned a little, a little bit about this. Why aren't they attracted to the left? In other words, why isn't this like a workers' rebellion kind of a thing, like a communist? Why aren't they, why aren't they drawn to Marxism, for example, where it's about, you know, uh, it, it's, it just, it's just funny how they're so enamored by this rich person, this wealthy person, as opposed to let's just switch the gears completely and, um, you know, as they did in the Russian Revolution. Well, I, I, I think people are not necessarily rational. <laughs> and I think the seduction of far-right politics comes from exactly that. I mean, you know, we, we, we have a, we're human beings and we have a sense of community. Everybody wants that. You want sovereignty. Right, some level of control over your life, um, and uh, if the malaise that you're feeling economically in terms of um, insecure jobs, jobs being outsourced, you don't have a sense of what's causing it because culturally, and this is really important, culturally the notion of meritocracy is so deep. The cultural power of neoclassical economics is so deep that people just internalize it, that market forces somehow reward uh, you know, effort. And then you find that, well, you've worked really hard. You, you, know, you live by the rules of the game, and you're struggling. But you don't have the political knowledge, the intellectual knowledge to actually understand the forces and then that have caused this. And then along comes uh, an Adolf Hitler or a Donald Trump. Uh, and says, well, it's those people, right? It's those people, and it could be some uh, conspiracy theory, and often that conspiracy theory involves anti-Semitism. It's a, you know, one of the oldest conspiracy theories. Uh, it could be black people, it could be the Chinese, it could be whoever, Martians, you know? Martians are responsible for your troubles. Uh, that becomes the pull because it taps into perhaps underlying prejudices that you anyway had. If you didn't have those prejudices, then you wouldn't be drawn to it, you know? 
but if you are already sort of bought into the idea that meritocracy rules and at the same time that somehow you belong to a superior culture and race compared to those other people, then you know, that's a toxic mix and it can be mobilized and you don't see the contradiction that the very people who are trying to foment this kind of sentiment and, and sort of, you know, so Steve Bannon, for example, says that the GOP is a party of the working class. Now, the Nazi party, the old Nazi party, the acronym was the NSDAP, the National Socialist German Workers' Party. Who was funding the NSDAP? Billionaires. Who's funding the far right? Billionaires. So the parallels to the past are just awfully uh, you know, similar. Uh, but, but, but the issue is this cultural dimension that kind of is a seduction of far-right politics. Thank you so much. Yeah, I really appreciate it. And thank you for thank all you. coming. Thank you. It was really good. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Tim. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> This concludes this episode of the Sarah Lawrence Library Podcast, and I actually had one of my favorite moments recording this specific podcast with Jami when I said you're a historian of economics, and he said you've outed me. That's exactly right. That's exactly what I am. That that like just my brain like just whatever the happy endorphins are <laughs> that go through the brain at that moment. I was just a rush with positive feelings and like really happy that I uh, pointed that out to him and that he concurred and uh, that was just a really cool moment that I just had to point out and I really, really enjoyed this conversation and I hope you'll come to our other talks we have other spotlights in what month is it is it October yet um, <laughs> but it's going to be October and for October it's Jean Shin artist Jean Shin uh, she's a sculptor, uh, just does amazing things with found objects and recycled objects. Check out her website, jeanshin.com. Uh, she's just a beautiful artist and can't wait to talk to her. And that'll be next week. And if you want to come to the uh, event, it's on October 10th at 4 p.m. Uh, in the library rainbow reading room it's called rainbow reading room because there's i don't well i don't want to i don't want to spoil it for you there's there's a rainbow in the room <laughs> that comes to life for faculty spotlights which is why you should show up um it's good to get out and uh, to see these things in the flesh happen and how they work and how they happen so uh, yeah, but th this is, this concludes the episode. As I said, if you'd like from the if you'd like more from the Sarah Lawrence Library podcast, then go back and listen to one of my other chats with staff, students, faculty to tide you over until the next episode. There's 51 episodes. I forgot to say this is either episode 51 or 52. I'm not sure 
But um, I should have mentioned the fact on the 50th episode that it was the 50th episode because that's kind of a milestone. And I probably should have mentioned this in the open of the show as opposed to the close, but this is a special treat for you who listen to every single minute of the show. See, you want to keep listening through to the end because you're going to get some good stuff <laughs> in the outro. Uh, but, uh, yeah, we're, we're past 50, uh, which is pretty amazing. Uh, it's gone by in a blink. I... I, I, if she asked me to remember like five of them, I would probably struggle because it's just been like a whirlwind of like trying to get episodes done each week and make sure they're good and trying to ensure they're good. And I've never done a podcast like this where it's always an interview. I've I've I have a different podcast where I just do things solo. Or this, I always have to be having someone to interview. And that's new to me. And I like it. I've established a routine that I like, and I'm enjoying it. And I hope you are, too. So let me know. You know, Give it that five-star rating and review in Apple Podcasts. Uh, let me know what you think of the show. Follow us on social media at SLC Library on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And visit the library website where you can check your library account, reserve a study room, or book a consultation with one of our research librarians at sarahlawrence.edu slash library. The Sarah Lawrence Student Life Preservation Project is accepting contributions. Visit slcstudentlifeproject.omica.net for more information. That URL will be in the show notes. If you have any questions, concerns, or suggestions, email me at fkale at sarahlawrence.edu. Music provided by the YouTube Free Audio Library. Thank you for sharing your time with us, one and all. I look forward to doing it again next week.